Last week we started on our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I didn't really get that far as far as the uh, content of chapter 12 was concerned, but it was basically to begin focusing on what the Word of God says with regard to the Spirit of God. So today we're going to continue in our um, study of the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of the believer. And there's an awful lot of scripture that I'm going to refer to. And I don't know if you've got pen and paper, if you'd like to write down some of these scriptures. We'll read some of them, but not all of them. But I do want to make sure that we basically cover as much as we can with regard to the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And one of the things that I had said last time was in regard to what Jesus had spoken in the giving of the Holy Spirit that he mentioned in Luke's chapter 11, where he was talking about earthly fathers giving good gifts unto their children, and how much more would the Holy Spirit be given by the Father of glory. And he said there that we should ask for the Spirit. But I also said that when you are born again, you receive the Spirit. That's part of the process of becoming a born-again believer, is that the Spirit of God regenerates or comes within you at that moment of conversion. And you are born again, you are an overcomer, you are more than a conqueror, you are filled with the Spirit at that moment of conversion. Uh, and... There's a sealing process that takes place at conversion. And the Bible talks about the fact that you are sealed with a seal of promise. And he is the earnest of our inheritance, as it says to us in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. And earnest is just a term that means down payment, if you will, like an escrow or a mortgage arrangement. But you're sealed with the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion. So then it begs the question, why would Jesus say that we should ask for the Spirit if we already get the Spirit at the time of conversion? Well, there is several reasons for us to uh, make that statement that it is a distinct and separate event in the life of a believer when we ask for the Spirit's filling and that which is referred to as the baptism of the Spirit. Now, when I say baptism of the Spirit, I'm not talking about the common usage of the term by most Pentecostal charismatic ministries that say that's when you begin to speak in tongues. That's not what the baptism is that I'm referring to. The baptism is from the Scripture of the Spirit at the moment of conversion. We are baptized into one faith. We are baptized into our Father, the Son, the Spirit, all three in one, and that takes place again at conversion. When John the Baptist was on the scene, before Jesus started his ministry, remember in Matthew chapter 3, John was talking about the fact that there would be one coming after him who would baptize with the Spirit and with fire. And he himself only baptized in water. So there was a distinct baptism that Jesus was going to bring upon uh, the believer. 
And it would be at, again, the time of conversion, as it is stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there is one baptism, uh, and he's not talking there about the water baptism. Uh, water baptism is a completely distinct and disassociated event from this ministry of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't confuse the two. Yes, baptism in water is still part of the church ministry, but it really doesn't have anything to do with the Spirit of God with regard to His work in the life of the believer. So, we are already, when we're born again, experiencing that baptism of the Holy Spirit where He comes and fills us, and we are then able as a subsequent event to that baptism, to be able to ask the Lord to fill us afresh. Um, and that is something that is evidenced in the Word of God very clearly. If you noticed in the book of Acts, Jesus in chapter 1 of the book of Acts told his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father uh, would come. He says, but you shall receive power in verse 8 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When Jesus had been talking to his disciples, we get a lot of information from the Gospel of John with regard to what he himself had to say about the Holy Spirit. And in that passage that I just read, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit coming upon the individuals. Now, in the Old Testament, all the way back even to the book of Genesis, the Spirit of God is an active person in the Godhead. We see him involved in the creation. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the earth as the creation began to take place. The Father was mentioned, and the Son, the Word, was mentioned, and the Spirit was mentioned. All three are there. Let us make man in our image, one of the Godhead had said. I believe the Spirit of God was involved in that as well, because God breathed his Spirit upon Adam, and Adam became a living soul. Jesus, in John chapter 20, after his resurrection, breathed on his disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Actually, there were only ten of them there. Judas obviously was not, and Thomas was missing. But the ten who were there were, I believe, filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment when Jesus breathed on them and gave them this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit to be dwelling in them. Now, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, we're going to see, as I've already mentioned, the fact that the Word of God says that the Holy Spirit is in us, the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and the Holy Spirit is with us. Three distinct statements, really, with regard to the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. John chapter 14 gives a, deal, a good deal of explanation with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I'd like to turn there with you, if you would. We'll start reading from uh, verse 15 of John's Gospel, chapter 14, if you'll turn there. Jesus is telling the disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And he uh, talks to them about believing in the Father and believing in him because the Father and he are one. 
and the words that he speaks, Jesus said, the words I speak to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus had been explaining to his disciples that he's about to leave, and he tells them, don't be troubled by this, I'm going to send you another comforter. And that's what he tells them in verse 15 and following of chapter 14. If you'll read there with me, he says, If you love me, verse 15, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, or comforter in many of your translations, that he may abide with you forever. So there Jesus is saying he is going to be with you, abiding with you, tabernacling with you, not in or upon, but with. Well, what's the meaning of that? I believe that what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit does indeed come as a comforter, like a companion would come alongside. As a matter of fact, the word that Jesus uses here in verse 16 for comforter or helper is the Greek word paraclete, and it is one who comes alongside. And that's basically the translation that is typically used, the helper, one who comes alongside, or the comforter is one who is right there with you. So he says that, he will be with you. And then he says in verse 17, he is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So what Jesus is saying is, he's there now with you. He dwells with you. He says that in a present tense presentation of the Spirit of God's ministry among them in that day when Jesus was speaking. And that's certainly the case. You know, again, going back to the Old Testament, we know that the Old Testament scriptures tell us a move of the Holy Spirit was very commonplace, but only when the Spirit of God came upon a particular individual for a particular service or thing that needed to be done for the Lord, whether it was through prophecy or some strength that was needed by the individual or courage um, or some empowerment that the Spirit of God would come upon that individual. And the Old Testament never, ever spoke of the individual being within or the Spirit being within the individual, rather. It was always that the Spirit came upon the individual. And in Joel's Gospel, Joel prophesied that there was coming a day when that was going to change, that the Holy Spirit would come upon all believers, all the maidens and the young men and old men and women, all those who would put their trust in him. And, of course, we all recognize the fact that that was fulfilled in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down upon the believers and filled them, and they began speaking with other tongues on that wonderful day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But so, here in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, Jesus is telling them, He is with you, and He will be in you. And then in verse 18, He says, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Now, that's a promise of his return. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit is present on the earth, ministering in the saints, through the saints, and for the glory of God. And never, ever does the Holy Spirit intentionally focus on himself. 
And we'll see that momentarily. We'll see that Jesus is going to be telling us that very thing. In verse 26 or 25 of chapter 14, if you'll move forward to that verse, it tells us these things. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, and he says here that he is going to be the one who is able to teach. And of course, in the church we have pastor teachers, and teachers are anointed to teach the Word of God, and that's wonderful that the ministry of the pastor teacher is available, and evangelists and apostles and prophets also, the speaking ministries or the teaching ministries of, of the church. But here he's talking about each one of us, Individually, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and he is able to teach us all things. And not only that, but in particular for the disciples to bring to remembrance everything that Jesus had said to them through his earthly ministry up to that point. That's an amazing thing, that the Spirit of God would bring to their remembrance all the things that were spoken to them. And John tells us that Jesus had spoken so many things and done so many miracles that even if all the books could be written, there wouldn't be enough space to uh, put them in all of the earth. There were that many things that Jesus had, had spoken. So there was a great deal of knowledge that they all had, and the Spirit was the promise that would be given to them to re bring to remembrance all those things that he had spoken. Well, moving forward to chapter 15, in verse 26, we see Jesus continuing to talk about the Helper. And he says in verse 26 of chapter 15, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So what is Jesus saying? The Spirit will never talk about himself, to puff up the Spirit of God, to, to place the Spirit of God himself on some kind of a pedestal to be reverenced above the Son. Always will be this fact in the church, that the Spirit of God will point to Jesus. That's one of the things that we need to be observing whenever we see what is purported to be a move of the Holy Spirit. Is it indeed exalting the Lord Jesus? Is it indeed giving him the glory. If it's not, then it likely isn't a true move of the Holy Spirit because it's contrary to what Jesus himself said about what the Spirit would do with regard to the glory uh, that would be only given to him through the Spirit. That's a very important thing to remember. He exalts Jesus. And then in verse 5, or 6 rather, of uh, chapter 16, Jesus continues to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and he's bringing again to the remembrance of those who have been his faithful disciples over these many years, that there are things that they need to understand with regard to the working of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 6, well, I'll start from verse 5, he says in verse 5 of chapter 16 of John's Gospel, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And that's understandable. He had told him, I'm leaving you. 
they had been his companion for three and a half years, and he's telling them they're on their own. Well, not exactly. Of course, he's not telling them that they're on their own. He's telling them that he's going to send a comforter. He's already talked about that comforter as being the Spirit of God. So he says in verse 7 of chapter 16 in John's Gospel, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Isn't that amazing? It's not at all a problem for them that Jesus is going away. He's saying, in fact, it's to your advantage that I go. You know, if, if we could have chosen what time frame in the history of man we would have liked to have lived, I wonder how much of, how many of us might have said, I would have loved to have been able to live in the territory of the Galilee region during the time of Christ. And sure, every one of us could probably say that would be wonderful. But what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, is something better. Better than even with him, the Spirit of God with us and in us and upon us will be far better than the experience that any one of us could have had walking with him and seeing all the miracles and hearing him speak. And that's an amazing thing when Jesus puts it in that context for us. It will be to your advantage, he says, that I go away. For I do not go away, if I do not go away, rather the helper will not come to you. But if I do depart, I will send him to you. Now, why is that an advantage? Because the Spirit can reach so many more. Jesus was limited in his bodily form to just a handful of individuals. Now the Spirit of God is in all of us and able to minister to the entire globe with the promise of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, to testify of him. And it's a powerful thing that we have in us. The means by which God wants to convey to the world this wonderful truth of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. So it is an advantage that he went away because having gone away, the helper did come. And in verse 8 it says, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. So that's one of the ministries, the purposes of the Holy Spirit to the lost. He is there to convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. He goes on to say in verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me. They need to understand that it is their sin that separates them from God. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is able to draw all men to the Lord through his power to make it known to them by convicting them of their sin. And of righteousness in verse 10, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Because of the fact that he has fulfilled all that God had laid out for the salvation of men, and he now is going to ascend into glory in that day soon, and we are the recipients of the wonderful promises of God, the great blessings that are ours through the Spirit of God because of his having ascended to the right hand of the Father in righteousness. And then finally in verse 11 he says, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And that's so very, very wonderful to hear. Satan, the ruler of this world. Remember, Jesus doesn't say that Satan has no power. He says he is the ruler of this world. It's present still, and it will be until Jesus takes the throne. 
But there's an awful lot that needs to be done between now and that time. And much devastation will come upon the face of the earth. Satan will continue to do a great deal of harm. And he has been ever since the very beginning. And it's his world because it was usurped by him from Adam. But God will take it back through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what, again, the convicting spirit of God is going to do in the hearts of those who put their trust in Christ. They will become cognizant of, of the fact that God will indeed judge Satan for his having done what he has done in the world. And that day is coming soon. Verse 13 continues and says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Very much like what he had said earlier, he's saying it again. He will guide you into all truth. He will teach you all things. He wants you to know truth. And it's the truth of the Word of God that sets us free. And it's the Spirit of God who guides us in that truth to help us to know what is true and what is not. We will be seeing that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that will be talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the discerning of spirits. And I believe that that is a critically important gift of the Holy Spirit for the church in this present hour, as well as it was in those early days of the church, we need to know whether things are of God or not. And it's by the Spirit of God that we have that revelation from the Spirit, by the Spirit, revealing to us what is truth compared to the lies of the enemy. He will come and he will guide you into all truth. And then he says in, in verse 13 following, he says, for he will not speak of us own authority or on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will tell you things to come so he will give revelation things to come that's the work of the holy spirit and again one of the gifts of the spirit is the gift of prophecy we'll be looking at that a foretelling as well as the foretelling of truth well verse 14 says he will glorify me. Again, Jesus is emphasizing that's the purpose of the Spirit, not to glorify himself, but to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, and therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. What a wonderful promise that Jesus has been making with regard to the gift and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who put their trust in him. So what does he do? Well, as Jesus says, says he's, he's, he's a comforter. He's a helper. He, he guides. He leads. He instructs. He convicts. He teaches. He exalts Jesus. Those are all things that Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will do. As we said in the book of Acts Chapter 1, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would receive power. And then in chapter 2, Peter preached the very first sermon on the day of Pentecost and the great move of the Holy Spirit where 3,000 souls were saved in that one day because Peter preached the word of God and the Holy Spirit had come down and filled them all and they were all speaking with tongues. But that filling had only taken place on that one day, and that was all that they, I think at that time, thought was going to happen. But then, as time progressed, 
not many days after that, it was a day when Peter and John saw a person begging at the gate of the temple. And Peter had faith to believe in that man's being able to be healed. And he said to that man, Silver and gold I have not, but what I do have I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Well, that man did indeed rise up and walk, and he leaped and praised the Lord, and there was a great marvelous moving of the Holy Spirit on that day, such that it caused a great consternation in the hearts of the leaders of the people, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, all of them were against the moving of the Holy Spirit in that day, and they put Peter and some of the others along with him into jail. And they brought them forth on the next day, and they tried to tell them never to speak in this name of Jesus again. And Peter in boldness spoke out, and he said, whether we are to do the will of God or the will of man, you decide. But as for us, we will serve our Lord Jesus Christ, and we will proclaim his name. No matter what you try to do to stop us, it will not work, because we are following him. He was very bold. But after that, he and all of the others who were jailed with him went to the rest of the church that were meeting, and he got together with them, along with John and the rest of the apostles. And it's given to us in chapter 4, the prayer that was prayed after these things took place. And I'd like to read that portion of scripture with you, chapter 4 of the book of Acts, beginning with verse 24. Acts 4, chapter 4, verse 24 says, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What a wonderful prayer. Do you think God answered that prayer in the affirmative? I should say so. As a matter of fact, we know he did. Verse 31 concludes with these, verses, these words. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, very much like it happened in the very first day when the Holy Spirit came upon them in the upper room. The place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Take note of two things. They were all filled again. They had been filled, but they had been filled now again. And it says also that they had prayed for boldness. And look what the filling accomplished. They were emboldened. They spoke the word of God with boldness. Boldness comes from that fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, and it is available to any of us that would ask for such things in the same way, believing that God answers that kind of prayer. 
that He loves to hear His servants call upon Him to fill us with power so that we might glorify the Lord Jesus through signs and wonders and miracles that follow us who believe. What a wonderful thing to really accept as far as we are concerned. This is the Word of God. Is it for today? Well, that's exactly what Peter said back in chapter 2. Not only for them, but for all who are called. Every one of us. Every believer. So we have this infilling of the Holy Spirit. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He is in us. He has come upon us. He is with us. And He does wonderful things for us and through us. All of which exalts the Lord Jesus, our King. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And I'd like to just read a couple of others to kind of reinforce what we've been saying about what the Spirit does in us at the time of conversion and following. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, we read in verse 13, talking about Jesus, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee or the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The redemption that he's speaking of is our redemption. We are his purchased property that is being mentioned here, his purchased possession. We are the ones that are being redeemed and we will be redeemed in that day of redemption that is yet to come. Now, turn to chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 30, says two things, one positive and one negative. He says in verse 30 of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Two things that we need to point out. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't. But he's also reminding us that we have been sealed by that same Holy Spirit. You were sealed for the day of redemption. It is a done deal. He has sealed you and it's not something that gets taken away. The seal is a permanent seal. Keep that in mind. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And he has sealed you with a seal of promise from the very day you believed until that day when you will be like him. But he says here again, it is our responsibility not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Now I'd like to point out the fact that one of the things that we see in the Word of God is that the Spirit is a person. It is wrong to assume that He is a force or just an essence. There is only one translation that I'm aware of that ever refers to the Holy Spirit as an it. And that's an unfortunate translation in the King James Version where he talks about the Spirit itself will do such and such. And that's a very poor translation. And it's translated that way by the translators of the King James because the word for spirit is pneuma and it is 
a neutral gender word. That doesn't mean that the spirit is a neutral gender, because the spirit is indeed a person. And in all of the other translations, in that particular passage that I just referred to, I believe it's in uh, Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 26, that that translation is found. All of the other translations translate it correctly, the spirit himself. And so that is, I believe, the truth. Never, ever think that the Spirit of God is not personified in Scripture. It is very much the truth. Always through the Word of God, He is personified as a person. You can't grieve a non-person. It, like a tree, cannot be grieved. But you can grieve a person. You can quench the Spirit. You can anger the spirit, as it is said in one of the Old Testament prophets, I believe it's Ezekiel. You can test the spirit. But, how could it be if he's not a true person and he is the third person of the Trinity? Make no mistake, when Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, had sold their property and they told the apostles that they sold the property for such and such a price. But they kept back a certain sum of the money for themselves. Well, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, knew that they had lied. And he said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. So not only is he a person, but he is identified by the apostle Peter as one of the Trinity, the Godhead, the three persons in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. All through the scriptures we see that correlation, that convincing work of the Spirit of God in the writing of this Word of God that we have that shows that He is indeed a member of the Godhead, as is Jesus and as is the Father. So we know that he is a person, and we know that he can be grieved, and we know that he is in us. We know that he has come upon us, and he does fill us when we ask for that filling, for the empowerment to perform some task or to be emboldened to represent Jesus and to testify to Jesus and his glory. So he does all of these things. And of course, that leads us to a couple of last things that I want to mention, that Jesus also had uh, promised that he would give us this Holy Spirit for a few other reasons as well, besides what we have looked at before. There is a need for the believer to bear much fruit. Jesus had talked about the fact that he is the vine and we are the branches, and it's his intent that we bear much fruit. Well, the fruit that we can bear is always available through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in us. Now, that's different than the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are distributed among the church, among the believers, severally as the Holy Spirit wills. But the fruits of the Spirit, or fruit, singular, uh, is produced by the Spirit in us. And in Galatians chapter 5, we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is what he is willing to make manifest in our lives as product of the fact that we have him in us. And it's a wonderful thing. 
after giving a, a list of very, very sinful things that the world participates in, he turns around in verse 22 of chapter 5 of the book of Galatians and says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All of those things that are negative have been spoken against in this fifth chapter of Galatians. You should read the whole chapter. It talks about our liberty in Christ and how love fulfills the law. And in that fulfilling, the Spirit of God produces this fruit that we just described here. And finally, we'll turn back to the text that we will eventually be looking at, perhaps next week in more detail, chapter 12 of the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you wish, turn there with me and we'll close with this passage that we've looked at once already, but really haven't uh, gotten very deeply into it. Chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, and we'll read from verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now hopefully after tonight's look at the purpose of the Spirit of God, we have a little bit less likelihood of being ignorant as to what the Spirit does in us. But here we're going to be looking at what the Spirit does through us. But he doesn't want any of us to be ignorant. He wants us to know all that we can know about the Spirit of God. And that's why we're emphasizing this. And I want to remind you again, I mentioned it last week, there are some churches who would not want to have anything to do with such teachings as what we're looking at tonight. There's almost, almost a fear of talking about the Holy Spirit in some churches. Oh, they treat the Word of God with great reverence. But when it comes to the Spirit of God, they tend not to focus on the Spirit because of what some other members of the body of Christ have done with regard to the abuse of the Spirit of God. But I tell you, quite frankly, there may very well be counterfeits in the present age with regard to the moving of the Holy Spirit. But I would submit to you that where there are counterfeits, there is reality. Just like with currency, you can counterfeit a dollar bill, but that doesn't exclude the fact that there is such a thing as a dollar bill, does it? No, the counterfeit is made by those who want to make it look like they are the real thing. And that's the way it is with, unfortunately, so many of the church that really begin to operate in the flesh. And I think of such very weird ministries like the uh, movement in the Toronto Blessing that took place several years back where they attributed to the Spirit of God barking, being drunk in the Spirit, and they used Ephesians, or rather, uh, yes, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 18, talking about where Paul says, Be not drunk with wine, but, which is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, they take that verse and twist it to talk about the fact that we can be drunk in the Spirit of God. And being drunk in the Spirit is nothing in Scripture that ever, ever speaks of such things. 
but that is their way of expressing their thoughts on how the spirit operates in the world today. And it became a very crazy thing. Barking like dogs, holy laughter, all kinds of very unbiblical things came out of that movement. So that's reality. That's happened in the world today. And there's good reason for those who are completely against any reference to the Holy Spirit because they look at those things and they see how ridiculous those things are and they want their people to avoid such things. But I submit to you that there is a balance. And that's why we're teaching of these things on the Holy Spirit because we want to have that balance in our church ministry that we have here and and wherever the Word of God is taught, if we would only give credit to what the Word of God says with regard to the Holy Spirit, instead of going with every doctrine that comes our way, then we would be much better off. And I hope that we will maintain such balance in our study and our understanding of the Word of God. Now concerning again verse verse 1 of chapter 12, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now we talked about that the last time, and we don't really need to go any further depth than what we did last last Thursday night on that particular part of what Paul is saying here. He goes on to say, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities or differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. And again, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, God the Father, the three in one. Verses 7 through 11 tell us what Paul is going to reveal in this chapter and the couple of chapters following. For to us, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, to edify the whole body. Paul tells us, verse 7, here's the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit, to edify or to encourage, to help, to lift up the body, all are to profit from it. Then he goes on to the detail as to what the Spirit's gifts are that he's referring to in this portion of the Word of God. Verse 8 says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one according, individually, as he wills. Not as we will, but as he wills. Individually, he distributes these gifts for a particular purpose, and that purpose is to edify the body, to build up the body, to make it so that the body will recognize itself as being united in Christ Jesus. That's where we are headed 
in our subsequent studies from here, in this wonderful portion of Scripture where Paul reveals to the church how important it is for the Spirit of God to be seen among us. And unfortunately, if we get it wrong, we could be open to the things of the flesh that would mimic the truth. Let it not be so. So let us be careful to rightly divide the word of God, the word of truth, as we move forward from here. We'll do more next time in this regard. God bless you.